Good morning, Trinity Church. It is good to see you. Welcome back. Actually, I could say that to me. Welcome back. <laughs> hey, I have a question for you this morning. What is the life you've always wanted? I'd like to have us pause for a moment and think about that this morning. If there was one thing you have always wanted to have, one thing you've always wanted to do or, or to be, what would that one thing be? Think about that. What would make your life the kind of life that, that you've always dreamed of living? I think it's different for all of us. For some of us, it might be just having enough wealth or money so that you, uh, you don't have to worry about the cost of anything you buy. I mean, that's such a foreign concept in today's culture, isn't it? For some people. You would never have to say, well, how much is that? You could just take care of it. For others, it might be the ability to travel whenever and wherever. I have some relatives who are able to do that. They are both retired, and they are just traveling wherever they would like to go, and that's a wonderful thing for them. What is it that you would want out of life? What would make your life the kind of life you've always dreamed of? Uh, for others, it could simply be taking a nap <laughs> or having your kids do that, right? <laughs> For some of us, it might be stronger and more resilient family relationships, or maybe just having that close circle of friends that, that really know us well and love us well. For others, it might be living in a more just and uh, fair, caring world. It varies for every one of us, but it's a good question to ask. What would that kind of life be for you? And just for the fun of it, let me change the question a little bit. What is the life we've always wanted? Now, I, I know that that sounds a bit strange to our ears. We just went from uh, singular to plural, from uh, me to we, from solo to, uh, to communal. But what is it that we together might have always wanted? And it's really not that big of a jump in reasoning, is it? Because most of life is communal, isn't it? I mean, really, think about it. We're born into a world full of people. And for many of us, we're born into a, a specific family unit. Um, we go through life looking for others, for close friendships. We work with people on a regular basis, whether it be for success or profit or whatever. We use social networks all the time. They're just a part of the fabric of our lives. We raise our own families. And for many of us, we measure our joy and our significance and sometimes our identity by the things that we do with other people. For instance, last week was the Rose Bowl and Rose Parade. Over 100,000 people gathered there together. For some of them, they were overnight, throwing those tortillas around, you know, and sleeping on the sidewalk. And if you've never gone and done that, you really ought to try that until you hit the age of about 63, and then it's no fun anymore. <laughs> but there they were, chair by chair, elbow by elbow, in this huge gathering of people, having joy, and they're going to have memories of that for years to come, especially if they were Penn State fans, right? <laughs> so defining the kind of life that we want based on including others is really a very natural part of life. But let me change the question one more time. What is the life that God wants for us? As Christians, that should be one of our primary questions in life. What is it that God wants from me as an individual? The life he wants for me. 
And for many people today, that, that question, that perspective is foreign. It's kind of like um, the, the difference uh, or the uh, foreignness of a slaughterhouse to a vegan or uh, a typewriter to a gen alpha person, you know, born after 2010. There's just not that recognition of it. And yet as Christians, we know that it's something we should be thinking about <clears throat> because we've been called into the body of Christ. We've been given a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ. So this morning, I'd like to start us off by thinking about the life that God wants for us. And we can trickle down the rest of it out of that. There's a passage in Scripture that tells us that life began with God. Genesis chapter 2, see it up on the board here, verse 7, talks about Adam and Eve in the garden, and it says, For the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So three remarkable things are happening here. Number one, Adam's physical body is crafted by God. So this is not a process of random chance. This is not evolution. God specifically made Adam, and later after Adam, Eve. Secondly, Adam's body is brought to life with God's life-giving breath. And folks, this is actually what makes us eternal beings. The eternal God breathed into humanity the breath of life, so that every breath we take really has the scent of heaven on it. We are made in the image of God. We are empowered by the breath of God. And thirdly, Adam, it says, became a nefesh, a living soul. So not only is body brought to life, but his soul is brought to life. And at that moment, he became alive and vital and sentient in relationship to God. And so as we think about life, the fact that God gave us life, it's not an odd question to say, what is the life God wants for us? Because when he creates something, he always has a purpose for it. Think about the Christmas gifts you gave this last Christmas. And ask yourself, why did I pick those gifts for those people? You know, for some of us, it was because they had it on their Amazon wish list, right? And that makes it really easy. You can go just pick out what they've already said would be helpful to them. For others of us, it was because it fit into our budget. You know, we have so much for Christmas, it's this and that and the other person and how much. But for some of us, the gifts that we chose were chosen and given because of what it would do for the person. Whether it's a, a miniature air pump for that backpacking friend of yours to blow up their air mattress so they don't have to puff at it. And of course, a lot of them are self-inflating. But for those who are not, this is a great gift. Maybe it's a leash for the dog of the friend who just got a new puppy who could care less about a leash, right? Or maybe it's that blue sweater because it's their favorite color and it's still cold, so thank you, Jesse. But we all give gifts mainly because of what it will do for a person, and God is the same way. When he gave us the gift of life, he said, there's a purpose for this. I want you to experience something, a life that I've always wanted you to have. So this morning, my goal for us is simply to explore that life. In the next uh, six weeks beyond this, we're going to be looking at the specific core values of our church, which actually, folks, are activities here at this church that help us experience the life we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open them to 2 Peter chapter 1? I love the sound of turning pages in your Bibles. You can't have that with an app as much unless you program it. 2 Peter chapter 1 takes a deep dive into the life that God has for us. 
And, and by the way, Peter is a great person to describe this life for us because of all the disciples, he was one of the more dominant ones who wanted to set the course for his own life. He kept butting heads with Jesus on different issues because he thought he knew best. And yet at the end of his life, he ends up betraying Christ and actually denying Christ. And I love the story of how Jesus comes back to him and he loves him. And he says, Peter, if you love me, this is the life I have for you. Feed my sheep. And so he restores him and he renews him and recommissions him. And so out of that, Peter has this very direct experience of what it means to give up his pursuit of life and to take on the life that God has for him. We're going to look, first of all, at 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. We're going to look at all 11 verses of that first section, but look at verses 3 and 4, because they begin with this amazing statement, his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let's pause there for just a minute. Think about that. God's divine power has granted to you and to me everything pertaining to life and how to live it well, how to live it with godliness. He goes on to say, this is through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We're being called up to a higher standard of living, a higher experience of living. And it's through the knowledge of him he called us to his glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, we have to admit, that is a mouthful, isn't it? There's a lot there. But essentially, Peter is telling us that God has this power that he gives to us that changes the way we live life. There are three things about this life I want you to notice this morning. We'll put them up on the screen for you. Number one in verses one through four, this is a life that is intensely robust. That is, it is fulfilling and it's real. Secondly, it is a life that is irresistibly compelling. In other words, it moves us to take action. It wants us to do something with the life, not merely sit in it or enjoy it. And number three is, it is an intentionally instrumental in our lives. That is, it does something dramatic for us. So let's look at this first part. It is intensely robust, verses 1 through 4. Notice Peter says, Simon Peter, he uses the word, the title from his old life and his new life, and he brings them together, and he says, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith, you have to be thinking of you, to those who have obtained a faith, of equal standing with ours. Think of Peter and the New Testament disciples and those who followed. Peter's pulling them all together, us and them, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, God's gift of transformed and powerful life is first of all available to every single Christian, whether they're mighty and well-known or whether they are quiet and unassuming. Every believer in Jesus Christ has the same standing before God, the same life available to them as the 12 apostles had. This is radical. Look again at verse 1. To those who obtained an equal standing with ours. Oh, that should catch our attention. 
Because the life that God offers you and I is exactly the same product he provided to the first disciples. Lisa and I one night went to Panda Express for dinner, and we really love the variety of Asian entrees, right? You can just pick all kinds of stuff there. And uh, the, the, the downside was we chose to get there five minutes before their closing time. <laughs> so when we walked in and we were looking at, at their buffet, uh, through no fault of their own, it was slim pickings. Folks, there was a lot of chow mein and broccoli beef, but very little of anything else. The reality is they had been serving great food all day long, and the closer they got to closing time, guess what? They're not cooking as much, right? And so you come in late, and you get the leftovers. But folks, I want to assure you that God is not like that. God is not uh, the type of God who gave everything he had to the first set of disciples up through the fourth century, and if you didn't come before the fourth century, I'm sorry. You get Holy Spirit chow mein. And beef and broccoli promises. God doesn't do that. How wonderful it is that God offers us the same life as he offered the disciples. It's just as powerful, time-tested, high quality of a life that we have available to us. It's intensely robust. Verse 2 tells us something else. It says that his grace and peace are multiplied to us as we get to know the Father and Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I'm offered a treat of some kind, I'd rather have it multiplied than added, right? My wife cooks uh, mince pie for me every year. Anybody like mince pie? Anybody know what mince pie is? Okay. My favorite pie. And if she's going to bake that, we do take it to family gatherings. Thankfully, very few of my family members like mince pie. And so it's multiplied to me. And he says, grace and peace. Would you like more grace and peace in your life? Is that something you want added or multiplied to you? And notice how we get it. It says, it is multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So, so much of what Peter is saying to us here has to do with our understanding of God and what he's promised to us. So the reality is, the more we get to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the more we have these things multiplied to us, the more his life becomes prominent in us, the more his promises grip us and hold us in life's circumstances. And the outcome is we escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Look again at verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And here it is, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. The more you know the glory of God, the more that you know his, his goodness and his excellence, the more his promises become grippable. The more we want them, the more they make sense to us. And he says, through them, you become these partakers. That is the word koinonia. You become a common beneficiary of all of these things. So how do we know God? If we're talking about the knowledge of God changing this in my life, how do you and I get to know God? That's through his word, right? And by the way, that's both Old and New Testament. Because the new is in the Old Testament concealed and the old is in the New Testament revealed. They are uh, kissing cousins, if you will. They depend upon each other. 
And I know in our culture today, and in some churches today, the Old Testament has become anathema. In fact, in some places it has been set aside. We have the New Testament of Jesus. We don't need the God of the Old Testament. We don't need the stories of the Old Testament. The reality is we do because the old informs the new. And when the New Testament says all scripture is inspired by God, what's it talking about? The Old Testament. Because the New Testament was still being written. So we get to know God through the word of God. To act on his promises, what do we have to do? Well, we have to gather them from the Bible. We have to understand them to be able to live them. And how do we become partakers of the divine nature? Think about that for a second. God has for every Christian an experience, a partaking, a koinonia of the divine nature. Would you love to live the way Jesus lived? Would you love to live the way God wants us to live? How do we become that partaker? It is through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we have this trifecta, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and it untethers us from the corruption of the world around us. We become uh, more and more unleashed from the gravitational pull of sinful desires that are within. We become more and more resistant to the invitation of immoral and wrong behaviors because of their work in our lives. Now, if you've ever gone through Romans, you'll have noticed something interesting. Romans chapter 1 through 7 mentions the Holy Spirit one time. Now, you would think because Romans is the book for a Christian to know about the experience of Christianity and and how we enter into Christ and what that means for us, but he's mentioned one time in the first seven chapters. And I've always found that rather remarkable until you get to chapter 8. You might hold your place in 2 Peter and just look at the end of chapter 7 and the first of chapter 8. I'm going to read them for you, but I want you to hear this well because it changes the dynamic of everything. This is where we partake in the divine nature. In Romans chapter 8, he is mentioned 30 times. Wow. What is the change that's going on here? Look at Paul's description in Romans 7. Romans 7 describes a person trying to live life without the power of the Holy Spirit. They're trying to live it by their own actions, their own efforts, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps as an individual. Verse 15 of chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, the law speaks to us about the right things to do. It's a good thing to hear, but I can't do it, he says. Look at verse 17. So it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I have this this brokenness problem within me. Sin dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh... For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Folks, have you ever felt that way? I have all the time because we're still living in the flesh. I know the things that God wants for me. I want to do them, but I struggle with it because my flesh is broken and bent in the direction of sin. It is naturally tending to go with sin. Verse 19 says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, 
It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul is saying, yes, as an individual, I can be a very good person. I can be a very caring, loving person. But within me is this problem of sin. And I'm wrestling with it. So I find it to be a law, a rule of life, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members my body another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Look at his conclusion. Wretched man or woman, wretched that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a great question. I can't do the things I want to do. I really want to be a better husband. I want to be a better uh, worker. I want to be a better friend. I, I want to be a better person. I want to have the life that I've always wanted. But the struggle within me is with this sin nature that became ours when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. It was inborn into every child who comes into this world. You ever hear the terrible twos? You ever had to teach your kid to say, mine or no? I didn't. That just came naturally. So what do we do? Holy Spirit's mentioned one time in all of this. Look at chapter 8. Beautiful, elegant, powerful words. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from that law of sin and death. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to their flesh, their minds are on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If you partake in the divine nature, this is true of you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And folks, this is often the times when, when we need to carefully evaluate our lives and say, is the Spirit of God within me? Have I entrusted myself to Christ? Is he my Lord and King? Am I committed to the kingdom? Has God entered me through the power of the Holy Spirit being born again? then I have this spirit within me. And if that has not been true for you, then you don't yet have the spirit of God within you. And chapter 7 still describes your life. But he goes on to say, verse 10, if any, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because we sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 12, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Wow, this is such a critical point for us as Christians. Do I live by the power of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis? Do I con let him control my life? That's what the word filling means in the New Testament. Is he controlling me? I like the way one theologian put it. We'll throw it up here on the screen for you. Living without Christ is like driving a car with its front end out of alignment. You can stay on the road if you grip the steering wheel with both hands and you, and you hang on tightly, but any lapse of attention and you head straight for the ditch. Society in general, educators, political leaders, and parents all exhort us to drive straight and curb our destructive tendencies, but it is a ceaseless struggle. Coming to Jesus Christ and living under his power is like getting a front-end alignment. Think about the difference there, right? How much control do you have to exert on that steering wheel after a front-end alignment? 
The pull toward the ditch is corrected from the inside. That's not to say there won't be bumps and potholes ahead that will still try and jar us off the road. Temptations and challenges will always test our alertness to steer a straight course of fellowship with God and obedience to his will. We can hardly afford to fall asleep at the wheel, but the basic skew in the moral mechanism has been repaired. Praise God. So this life is intensely robust. Secondly, this life is irresistibly compelling. It calls us to do something with it. Look at verses 5 through 9 in 2 Peter 1. For this very reason, now hold on just a second. What's the reason? Knowledge of God, great and precious promises, partakers of the Holy Spirit. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with perseverance, perseverance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Because God's life is so intensely robust with his promises and the partaking of his spirit, he says, I want you to add something to that faith. And he gives us here seven qualities that are just so beautifully crafted. By the way, if you didn't get a written uh, sermon note this morning, on the way out, grab one, because on the back side of it is all seven of these listed with practical steps of what you can do this week to live them out. And I'd recommend you just pick one. In fact, start with the first one. And just read through where you find it in Scripture and how you can actually do something with it. We're not going to go into detail on that right now, but I wanted that to be available to you. It's important to realize these qualities are not optional in the Christian life. God didn't say, have faith, you're done. He said, have faith and make every effort to add these to your faith, to supplement your faith. By the way, when was the last time you made every effort at something? Was it when you were getting that golf swing just right? He just made every effort. Was it finding another flight after yours was scrubbed in Snowmageddon? Right? And I'm making every effort to get home. Was it to stay awake during a trigonometry exam after a late night with friends? Making every effort. Maybe just putting the kiddos to sleep when you're almost already there. Making that every effort. Paul says... Peter says, this is the kind of effort God wants for us with these qualities. And there's a reason for it. Notice the reasons here. Two reasons. First of all, they keep us from being ineffective. This is the Greek word that says not idle, not inoperative, not inactive. So these things actually create productivity in our life for God and for others in our relationships. They make our lives count for something here and in eternity. And secondly, they keep us from being unfruitful Literally, not noxious, not a poisonous or foul smell. If you've ever wanted to know the Greek word for a fart, this is it. We had a dear little cocker spaniel, his name was Scooter, who would lie on the floor in front of us while we were relaxing together as a family, but boy, could he clear a room. He'd have what we called SBDs, silent but deadly. 
You know, he passed some gas. Whoa, where did that come from? Peter says, look, if these qualities exist in your life, you will not be noxious to people around you. You will be a breath of fresh air. These qualities will refresh everyone around you as they breathe in the scent of your life. But notice, too, if you don't have these qualities increasing in your life, there are two negative things that are going on. Number one, Peter says, it results in nearsightedness and almost blindness. Now, you, you probably don't know this, but I was nearsighted at one point. My vision was not 20-20. It was 270-250. So at night, I could read a book right here, but in the morning, I could not see my alarm clock. And unless I had had indexed lenses, my lenses would have been a half an inch thick, just to see clearly. And then God provided the opportunity for lens replacement, and I went from 270, 250 to 2018 in two weeks. It was like, oh, there's a world out there. The difference. But Peter says, look, folks, if we don't have these qualities increasing in us, we become so nearsighted that we only see the things immediately around us, our circumstances, the struggle. We don't get that bigger picture that God has for us. We see only the cares of life and, and not the power and promises of God. Do you see how essential these are in our lives? Second thing is it produces forgetfulness. <laughs> I'm starting to get to that age where I have to think about, why did I come into this room? Where's my phone again? That, that thing of not remembering. So failing to take to heart all of this, Peter says you forget your past cleansing from sin. It becomes this distant memory of what God has done for us. We begin to feel ungrateful. And we begin to say, I can be independent of God because what has he done for me anyway? By the way, how many of you have ever read the book of Judges? Can I just see a quick show of hands? Oh, you guys are so literate. I love that. Was that your favorite book of the Bible? <laughs> I teach that at uh, Biola University, and it's actually coupled with Ruth, and I'll ask the students in class, so why are you in the class? Did you have to take it? This is a required class, you know, you just needed one more class, and inevitably, one of the answers is, I love the book of Ruth. And I'll say, that is wonderful. That's two weeks out of the 15. <laughs> The rest of it is judges. And it's a horrible story. It's horrific. It is terrible. The people of Israel are going downhill fast. They're becoming the Canaanites. And you get to the end of the book and you say, I can't even read the last chapter. As this woman's body is cut into 12 parts and shipped UPS throughout Israel. There is one verse in Judges that explains it all. Do you want to hear it? Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says, And all that generation of Joshua and Caleb were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. They were nearsighted and forgetful. This is where America is going today. This is where our world is going today because we have forgotten these things. I love what John Piper says as he sharpens his pencil on this point. Look at this. The problem with the person who does not strive toward all the fruit of faith is that he is blind in two directions. When he looks to the future, it's all a haze, and the promises of God are swallowed up in a blur of worldly longings. And when he looks to the past, the forgiveness that made him so excited at first is well-nigh forgotten. 
and all he sees is an empty prayer life and a meaningless ritual of baptism. In other words, just as in verse 3, 2 Peter 1, 3, the power of godliness flows through the knowledge of God, so also in verse 9, blindness to the past and future work of God blocks that power and leaves us limp in the water, drifting downstream toward destruction. So may I ask you a question this morning? It's one I've been asking myself this week. As a Christian, toward what are you making every effort? What is it that captivates you on a daily basis to which you push your time and energy and resources making every effort toward it? Are we striving toward the life that God has always wanted for us or is it really more the life that I've always wanted for me that becomes my daily focus? Are we being productive and a breath of fresh air in our relationships? Are we nearsighted and forgetful because we are neglecting these qualities? This is a heartbeat for Peter, and it should be a heartbeat for us. Every day when we get up, we ought to even have this list available. God, help me to grow in these things. Parents, if you've got kids at home, obviously, if you're parents, you have kids somewhere. <laughs> Take these qualities and ask yourself, is my son, is my daughter growing in this quality this week? How can I help them do that? What songs can we play in the cars we drive? What conversations can we have? What uh, thoughts can I embed in their minds? What activities can we do that would help them see these things? The life of God is irresistibly compelling because it changes the scent and it focuses our lives on what is productive and good. Third point is the life that God has for us is intentionally instrumental. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, and, and notice this, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the life that God wants for us creates a rich present and a positive experience for us in eternity. There's these two aspects to it. It's instrumental in the here and now and the there and then. It gives us a rich confidence and reward when we enter heaven. In fact, living out these seven qualities, adding them to our faith, actually confirms we are Christians. Notice what he says here. It confirms our election and calling. And we know, we know folks, don't we, that our salvation is reliant on Jesus' shed blood death and resurrection. We are confident that we cannot replicate that. There's nothing I can do to earn my salvation or be pleasing to God apart from it. But my sense of security as a Christian has everything to do by what I do on a daily basis. So if you're not feeling that sense of security, God has a, a prescription for you. Here it is. Do these things. Pursue these things. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You will not sin. There will be less and less a proneness towards sin. Does anyone here want to sin less? Absolutely. I don't want to continue to live in sin. I don't want to continue to feel the feelings of shame and guilt because I've failed God in some way. I don't want to live out of my flesh. 
I want to struggle less with the power and the attraction of sin. And so God invites us. He says, live out this life that I have for you. Start with faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, King of kings, the creator of all things. Begin there. But then add these things to your faith. And when we do, he says, the second thing that happens is when we enter heaven, there is a rich reward provided for us. Not because we've saved ourselves, but because we have acted on that salvation to do these things in life. Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life and many other books, writes this. If you are a child of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have an account in heaven with your name on it. There it is. And God is recording in it everything you put into it. The Bible says when you give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, it's written down. Each time you are generous with your family, friends, church, and unbelievers, it is recorded and rewarded. Your generosity is an investment, and the bank of heaven pays interest. Suppose he says, I went to a bank and asked, how much interest have I accumulated? What would the banker say? How much have you put in? He says, if I tell him, well, nothing. Then he would respond, well, I'm sorry, sir, but the rule is you don't get interest until you make an investment. That's the rule in the Christian life, too, he writes. You will store up treasure in heaven by giving to and investing in others, that is, living out the life that God wants you to live. And he says, 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 9 says this. Listen to these words carefully. Give happily to those in need. Always be ready to share whatever God has given you. By doing this, you will be storing up real treasure for yourselves in heaven. It is the only safe investment for eternity. And Rick concludes, God's bank never goes bankrupt. And you're going to spend more time on that side of eternity than on this. So invest. So let's wrap this up. Notice verses 12 through 14. Peter hunkers down on this and he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you will be able at any time to recall these things. He says, I'm going to keep putting this up on the board week after week. I want this mantra to be yours to live out. I want these qualities to be yours to live out. And so as we begin 2023, as we launch into this new series of the life we've always wanted, as we look at the core values here that are on our walls and scattered throughout the campus, these are activities that drive us deeper in these qualities. These activities give us a chance to live out these qualities. And so... We want to be transformed, and I love the fact that we have our vision banners back up, journeying together with Jesus toward transformation. That's what Peter's writing about here. It transforms us in robust ways. It compels us to live in different ways, and it offers us a life of rich significance here and ultimately in eternity. That's the life that God wants for us. I'd like to invite you to pray with me. Father, thank you for Peter, that he was a real man who never really, well, he did look at life 
initially for himself. But you took him through this process of transformation. He journeyed together with the disciples, with you, and he became different. And Father, the difference that he's sharing with us this morning, this life that you have always wanted for us, that honestly we can experience together and it becomes a life we want, is transformative, it's radical, it's different, it's robust. Father, this morning, may each of us determine afresh, not as a New Year's resolution, but as a conviction, that this is the life to pursue, this is the life to follow. And God, would you, through your indwelling Holy Spirit, as we become partakers of the divine nature, would you enable us to be this kind of person, this kind of friend, husband, wife, worker, employer, whatever, the, whatever it might be. God, change us and help us to find that we are productive, Father, and we are becoming more godly. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Amen. Let's stand.